Hello, everyone, and welcome to McGill Cares webcast series, Supporting Family and Informal Caregivers. I'm Claire Webster, a former caregiver, certified dementia care consultant, and founder of McGill University's Dementia Education Program. I work with a dynamic team of leading healthcare professionals to oversee the program, who include Dr. José Moret from the Division of Geriatric Medicine and Dr. Serge Gauthier, Professor Emeritus, formerly of the McGill University Research Center for Studies in Aging. McGill Cares is supported by the Amelia Saputo Community Outreach for Dementia Care. I am very excited about today's episode as we have the founder of the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, the MOCA. Today, my guest today is Dr. Ziad Nezreddin. Dr. Nezreddin is founder and director of the MOCA Clinic and Institute. He's a graduate of the University of Sherbrooke Medical School and is actively involved in clinical research on Alzheimer's disease. He created and developed the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, the MOCA test, which is available in 100 languages and dialects and used in over 200 countries around the world. Dr. Nezreddin will share with us how he developed the MOCA test and the process of diagnosing dementia. He will also provide us with an overview of some of his new exciting initiatives. Welcome to Miguel Cares, Dr. Nezuddin. Thank you so much, Claire, for this uh, very nice introduction. Uh, it will be a pleasure to, uh, to speak about this important topic, cognitive screening and early detection. And since it is the most widely used test in the world, I'm so excited to hear uh, how you founded it and uh, the way it's being used today. So I'll let you take it away. Thank you so much. So um, thank you again for this nice introduction, uh, Claire. And uh, today I will speak to you about the importance of early detection um, for cognitive impairment and how uh, the uh, MOCA test was developed and how it's now being used around the world and the new uh, ideas of how to improve that test and to make it uh, available for more people with different uh, um, abilities, either hearing impairment, visual impairment, uh, uh, low education, uh, remote testing with the COVID and uh, new ideas that I will share with you how to tackle the need for cognitive screening as new therapies are coming out uh, soon, hopefully. My conflict of interest for this presentation, obviously, I'm uh, the MOCA test creator, and uh, so um, we uh, have a bias, a favorable bias for that test. I'm involved also in multiple uh, clinical trials with the uh, pharmaceutical industry. So the plan today is to speak to you about the uh, early diagnosis and uh, so that we can intervene early uh, in managing cognitive uh, dysfunction. Uh, how do we follow up our patients, what new uh, research is bringing, and also speak also about the test and it is, uh, uh, its various uh, versions of the test and the digital development of the tool. <clears throat> so uh, when we see a patient in our clinic, we are concerned often about a patient who's concerned about their cognition, they come to see us and we were saying to them uh, what's happening since when the problem started. And we're trying to become like a investigator, trying to inquire what's the cause of the problem. So we are taking uh, the history taking is so important uh, to know what's happening and since when, 
and what factors could affect their cognition. This not always means that they have Alzheimer's. Uh, multiple causes of memory problems exist, uh, including stress, uh, uh, including depression, sleep problems, medication intakes, I'll go through those elements. So the doctor has to determine what the possible cause could be. So they uh, will run a uh, questions about their organization of their house, how they're able to manage their finances, uh, if the cognitive impairment is affecting their ability to orient themselves for in time and space, um, if they have difficulty uh, with driving, for example. So these questions will be asked at the first interview with the patient. Then we run a physical and neurological exam to determine the other signs of uh, general illness or other neurological conditions that could affect uh, the patient. We also look at lifestyle factors, smoking, uh, alcohol intake, uh, now uh, marijuana intake as well. Um, family history also, as we know that uh, genetic component could be important. Uh, so we look into that uh, as well. So when we see the patient, we uh, after doing the history intake, we then run a cognitive screening exam to see what cognitive functions are working well, what uh, functions might be working lower than expected for the age of the patient at their education level. There are several, several cognitive screening tools that are available for clinicians. The most known are the MMSE, Mini Mental State Exam and the MOCA uh, also since a few years now has been coming more and more used uh, as a tool because it detects earlier cognitive impairment than the MMSE. There's also simpler tests, uh, clock drawing tests, uh, and the uh, MINICOG that are uh, shorter versions of screening tools, but they are not sensitive enough for early stage of impairment. <clears throat> so what is the MOCA? The MOCA uh, was developed uh, uh, in 1996, when I came back from uh, California for after my fellowship, I uh, was uh, used to take three hours in my fellowship to assess patients uh, for cognitive impairment. But when I came back to Montreal, three hours is not is too much when I'm working in a neurological clinic, like a first line neurology clinic on the south shore of Montreal. So we are. Uh, seeing a lot of patients and if i in the beginning i said okay i'm going to be more efficient i'll take an hour and a half to see each patient and so in one day i would see three patients maximum taking time also to make my reports so i had a waiting list that was so long and i thought it's impossible that i could continue that way doing an hour and a half assessment even though this is my uh, level uh, my domain of expertise so i thought okay i should come up with a shorter uh, assessment that could scan the brain uh, for different domains of cognition that are important in early impairment and I came up with this idea of having a short test of 10 minutes that is sensitive enough to pick up small uh, deficits in uh, cognition and also to look at different uh, domains like I said uh, uh, cognitive domains that are related to different neuroanatomical areas in the brain so like a cognitive scan in 10 minutes so this is how the idea started, and then uh, the test kept being improved, and uh, finally it was uh, its validation. The last validation was in 2005, 
So it took nine years of uh, progressive uh, improvements, small improvements to the test. And finally, it was uh, uh, the validation study was uh, published in 2005. Since then, it became the number one recommended test for detection of early cognitive impairment. We call this MCI, which is mild cognitive impairment, uh, and became not only uh, useful for detecting Alzheimer, early stages of Alzheimer's, but also other uh, neurological conditions such as Parkinson that could have cognition affected in Parkinson. Stroke patients also have cognitive impairment, so it became also uh, recommended for those other conditions. And also general medical conditions, uh, for example, heart failure with low output to the brain uh, can have memory issues. Uh, lung disease with poor oxygenation to the brain can have lung uh, cognitive impairment associated with it. And also, uh, uh, recently with COVID, we've seen many patients having the brain fog after long co uh, the long COVID syndrome, and the MOCA has been used extensively to detect those uh, subtle cognitive deficits, um, and, and etc. Uh, so now it's being used uh, in 200 countries and 100 languages and dialects, uh, uh, validated in most of those languages. Uh, and the test is very uh, well accepted by the scientific community, citing the uh, the test in more than 18,000 scientific studies since 2005. Um, the test is available uh, in multiple languages, like I mentioned, in different versions, versions that are the standard test, uh, the 7.1 and 8.1, which is a version that includes uh, a subscore for memory called memory index score. And we have a version called BASIC, which is for patients with low education levels, um, and a version for a patient with visual impairment and hearing impairment, and versions that can be administered over the phone, and more recently, versions that we can administer over a video conference. So, and we have the electronic version, which is uh, administered on iPad or uh, tablets, Android tablets, that could help uh, even more uh, clinicians or raters to uh, give the proper instructions to the patients. Uh, so uh, this way there would be less variability when we administer the test. On the paper version, we have to remember all the four pages of instructions of how to administer the uh, paper test to the patient. But the electronic version is uh, helps you uh, each step of the way to tell you what instruction you should give to the patient. This way there'll be less variability in the score for, of the patient. It's so popular that it's now made the MOCA test to the uh, Netflix uh, series, uh, Grey's Anatomy. Dr. Gray was examining one of her colleagues uh, in the show who had some memory uh, difficulties. The same thing after a head injury in the House of Cards, there was also some issues with memory and the MOCA was also used there. And uh, in This Is Us series, uh, also Rebecca had some difficulties with her memory. They, take her, they took her to Los Angeles to see a physician there where he administered the, the MOCA test. And it's also so popular, not only in fiction, but in, in reality that it, the, the test made it to the White House examining in 2018, the previous uh, president of the United States. And I had to uh, give interviews after that to explain how come the uh, president had that type of score. So it was a uh, very busy time uh, for, uh, for me to speak to the media at that point. So when we, we come back to our patient, uh, so the patient, uh, Teresa, who came 
to uh, complain about her short-term memory loss. Uh, she's a grandma of, uh, she's 76, uh, and she's uh, um, complaining since at least a year or two of short-term memory loss. Um, her score on the MMSE was 30 out of 30, uh, which is considered normal. And when we do the MOCA, which is more sensitive and more difficult than the MMSE, uh, she scored 22 out of 30. And we can see, it's maybe a little bit small, but <clears throat> we can see on the right hand here, the score on her memory part of the test, the short, the immediate memory is very good, but the, uh, 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 when we ask her the delayed recall memory, which is five minutes after we ask her to recall the words, the delayed recall is at zero out of five. So the, when we give her five words to remember, she would uh, not recall any of those five words after five minutes. Although immediately she heard the words, she repeated them twice, but with uh, time, the memory, uh, the, the words lose the trace in her brain and she forgets all five words. And even when we give her cues uh, to try to help her recall those words, she still has difficulty finding them. She only found two out of the five with multiple choice cues, which means her memory impairment is severe, uh, at least for short-term memory. We also see some difficulties with executive functions like alternating between numbers and letters in the first trial of the test and some difficulty placing adequately the long hand and the short hand of the clock uh, to, uh, to uh, point at 11.10. Um, otherwise, she had also some difficulty finding words. She, had, she found nine words uh, in one minute and she's supposed to have at least 11 words and more. So when we uh, see this type of pattern of cognitive dysfunction, then we have to uh, do uh, more investigation to determine the cause. So the, uh, the clinician will have a challenge to see, is this the pattern we see in Alzheimer's? Is it uh, a pattern we see in other neurological conditions? Um, and then we have to look at our neurological exam, see if there are signs of Parkinson or signs of uh, uh, normal pressure hydrocephalus, these are different neurological conditions that can affect memory, but they are often accompanied by other neurological signs uh, on neurological exam. Um, we can have also strokes that can affect uh, cognition, so we sometimes look at the neurological exam, see if there are any signs of stroke with the arm that is weaker on one side or a drooped uh, uh, smile on one side more than the other. Um, we also look if the patient has vascular factors that could increase their risk of having a vessel disease in their brain. If they have high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, for example, cholesterol, obesity, or smoking, it can increase their risk of having a vascular cognitive impairment. Um, sometimes we can have other conditions like heart and lung disease or renal failure that could affect uh, uh, cognition, uh, thyroid problems, uh, B12 deficiencies, uh, um, increased calcium levels, and low hemoglobin levels like anemia can sometimes affect cognition. Rarely we can have brain tumors uh, that can also be uh, coming in the presentation, but usually they don't have only memory issues. Uh, medication is also a, a big issue, uh, often sedatives uh, that we take for sleeping or for anxiety 
uh, or narcotics that we can take for pain can also affect our uh, cognition. Some medication will have anticholinergic uh, uh, effects, meaning that they affect the acetylcholine, which is one of the neurotransmitters involved in attention and memory. So some medications uh, can affect uh, the anticholinergic system. So we have to review those medications. We can also think of other causes of cognitive impairment, could be stress-related, um, depression, burnout, uh, or anxiety. Now we also have to consider the intake of alcohol, how many drinks a day we're taking, if we exceed the recommended uh, or the maximum recommended level of, al of alcohol intake, then we could also be at risk. Uh, the same with thing with the uh, intake newly of marijuana products. So when we go through uh, all this di differential diagnosis, uh, we have to uh, determine what is the most likely cause. And then we have to also consider doing more investigations like a blood test to check different uh, B12 levels, thyroid function, uh, as well as other uh, different uh, levels of metabolic uh, abnormalities that can affect cognition. Then we can also decide to do imaging uh, for the brain. And sometimes rarely we do uh, what we call the lumbar puncture to determine if there are other more rare causes of uh, cognitive impairment. So the imaging, usually we use a, a, a CT scan or an MRI scan. The MRI has the advantage of picking up more subtle uh, um, damage to the uh, vessel, small vessel disease that we can sometimes miss on a regular CT scan. And it can help us determine if the small vessel disease is significant, then it can affect uh, cognition. These are the white matter changes in the brain that also can affect uh, cognition if they are uh, significant in their, in their quantity. <clears throat> we have now more advanced scans that are called amyloid scans, uh, amyloid PET scans with the positron emission tomography. And we have also a tau PET scan, but their tau PET scan is more in, uh, mostly used in research right now. And these scans can pick up biomarkers that are uh, related, very closely related to Alzheimer. And uh, it can help us have a more precise diagnosis. But the problem with the amyloid PET scans is the accessibility is very limited. Uh, so it's not always easy to obtain those scans uh, and they're very expensive. <clears throat> the one that is more accessible is the uh, FDG PET scan, which is the glucose uh, injection of glucose. And then we look at the brain uptake of the glucose. Usually all neurons in the brain uh, take glucose, uptake the glucose and capture, capture it. And with Alzheimer patients, certain areas are de degenerating. So there's less uh, uptake in those areas for the glucose. So it uh, helps us indirectly detect a pattern that looks like an Alzheimer pattern. So when we uh, receive all those results, uh, we uh, will analyze, I mean, the, the file and say, okay, which is the most likely cause of the cognitive impairment, looking at imaging, blood tests, and cognitive testing. So, and then we meet again with the patient, and then we discuss uh, the most likely uh, diagnosis uh, um, after explaining the results of cognitive testing, imaging testing, and neurological exam uh, to determine what the most likely cause could be. 
for so for Teresa, the most likely cause was uh, Alzheimer's disease because of the uh, typical pattern on cognitive screening exam that we did uh, earlier for her and the uh, findings on amyloid, not amyloid we had, we had the FDG PET for her that had the pattern for Alzheimer's. Uh, she was relatively autonomous. Uh, she was still able to do all her chores um, on her own. Uh, so she was not in what we call the dementia stage of Alzheimer's. She was in the MCI stage, which is a, a stage where the person has cognitive impairment but is able to take care of themselves on their own without the help of others around them. When we look at this uh, uh, slide, it's a very famous slide showing the different uh, uh, proteins involved in Alzheimer's pathology. And one of the most important ones is called amyloid. And the amyloid protein often starts depositing in the brain 15 to 20 years before the onset of memory symptoms. And then uh, when the memory symptoms start, are other proteins called tau that start to accumulate as well in the brain. Um, so uh, if we are able to detect those proteins early on, we're eventually will be able to address or treat those uh, abnormal accumulations of proteins and maybe uh, slow down cognitive decline and uh, loss of autonomy. Um, here I put on the slide also where the MOCA could be administered. Uh, usually it's administered when the symptoms start, like when memory issues are starting. And um, it's uh, because it's more sensitive than the MMSE, it's able to pick up subtle cognitive impairment early on. Um, and the MMSE will pick it up more uh, at a later stage uh, where we could miss the early uh, stages of the disease. So what's the use of picking it up early? I mean, in terms of uh, treatment, uh, right now, the current treatments that are approved in Canada um, uh, are the donepezil, uh, rivastigmine, galantamine, and memantine. These are medications that have been there for uh, almost 25 years, uh, uh, which are acting on neurotransmitters. They're not acting on... Um, on the pathology itself, on the protein deposition or neurodegeneration. So they are, have very limited ability to uh, slow down disease uh, progression. They only act on the symptoms of the patient. So their, uh, their effect is uh, limited in time and in magnitude. Uh, lots of research is happening to try to tackle the underlying pathology, which is uh, believed to be uh, amyloid and tau. And uh, some studies have shown some signals uh, with the aducanumab uh, that was uh, partially positive and uh, approved now in the, uh, in the US, uh, uh, but conditional to doing more studies because uh, the studies were not, one was positive, one was negative. We have other uh, medications that are potential uh, candidates uh, with the uh, elilililidonanumab and we have Ezai Likanumab who's shown uh, positive results but, uh, that were announced uh, uh, recently and they will be submitting for FDA approval uh, shortly. So, uh, so there is hope uh, 
although the uh, Gantanero map was uh, also uh, shown to be uh, to have failed, unfortunately, uh, recently uh, with their uh, phase three trial. Uh, we have other medications, semaglutide, which acts more on glucose metabolism in the brain, um, and other studies are coming up. So there's a hope for the future where we uh, will have eventually a treatment that will alter the course of that disease. And, and then it will make even more sense to try to pick it up even earlier uh, and to be able to prevent the cognitive decline and loss of autonomy. So uh, when we see those patients as a general practitioner, uh, we can either follow them on our own or refer them to specialists. And specialists usually see the more complex cases more early onset and also see them if, if, if it's required to have a diagnostic confirmation. And also if we want to access more advanced biomarkers such as amyloid uh, in the brain, or we can also have uh, analysis of the cerebrospinal fluid uh, with a lumbar puncture that can also detect some of those uh, biomarkers. And if the patients and families are interested to participate in clinical trials. What does the future hold? Uh, so this is a nice uh, view of what we can do in the future. Uh, so we were hoping to detect earlier cognitive impairment by uh, video games and different digital tools that can, uh, can detect cognitive impairment early, even driving tests, uh, virtual driving tests that we could do in the future to determine how safe it is to uh, drive even if we have some mild impairment in cognition. And at MOCA here, we are developing uh, digital solutions, uh, like I mentioned before, the digital uh, app uh, that is now available on tablet. Uh, we call this the MOCA Duo because we have also a MOCA Solo. The Duo will be a face-to-face -face, uh, assessment with a rater, and the Solo will be uh, in the future coming up, uh, hopefully to help uh, self-assess, uh, let's say, in the, in the doctor's office who is not... Uh, who doesn't have time to assess your cognition, you, he can sit you in a separate office and you sit in front of the computer and the uh, machine will give you all the questions to answer. And with the voice recognition and uh, artificial intelligence, the it will capture your responses and it will automatically grade the test and give your doctor immediate, uh, uh, immediately the, uh, the test results uh, while you're waiting in the waiting room, he will have your test results and then he can see you and explain the, and interpret the test uh, for you, thus saving a lot of time for doctors who are uh, very busy, especially if we need to screen more and more patients. I think this solution uh, will be uh, very welcomed for the clinicians. And will be probably more accurate than humans because uh, it will be standardized way always of asking the questions in the same way the scores will be following a specific algorithm so i think it will be uh, even more precise for uh, very detailed testing uh, of patients we're also working on a uh, public uh, app that the general public can use uh, the duo and the solo will be for physicians only um, and the espresso, which to remain in the theme of coffee, will be uh, for the general public, which should be a test that will help uh, assess your cognition quickly on your phone uh, or a tablet or a desktop, uh, where we will look at uh, short-term memory, uh, also concentration, 
processing speed, executive functions, which are usually uh, affected in early uh, Alzheimer's. So this uh, Expresso is being validated right now. So we hopefully uh, can, uh, it could predict what your MOCA test score could be, and then it will um, incite you to either uh, see your doctor or maybe it can reassure you about your cognitive uh, uh, abilities. We're also working on a, a Mocha drive, which is also a computerized game that you can, uh, you're driving the car on the streets and we can try to predict if you are making too many errors and could affect you, maybe your real driving. So we have to compare this to the on-road driving. Uh, so it's a longer process to uh, come up with this solution, but could be very helpful knowing how much uh, uh, we want patients to continue to be autonomous, but at the same time, we don't want them to lose, I mean, to uh, be at risk of accidents uh, for, and put themselves at risk and the uh, other people on the road at risk. So it's important to uh, have a quick assessment that can determine that risk for driving. So we're working on the Mocha Expresso, like I mentioned before. So if we are concerned about uh, somebody in our family, we could do the Mocha Expresso uh, with them and then uh, we could eventually uh, intervene early uh, instead of waiting to see our doctor or sometimes we're scared to see the doctor. We don't want to know the answer to the question so uh, about our cognition. So it could be done privately and then take your time to decide if you want to go or not, but it could be a helpful tool in that way. Uh, there is a misconception that uh, cognition uh, or cognitive impairment there's nothing to do about it so there's a, a study by the the lancet saying that 40 percent of cognitive issues could be preventable so i think it's worth it to uh to to detect cognitive impairment or issues and then intervene because it could be intervention on your blood pressure, your sugar levels, your medication you're taking. If you have deafness, also it can affect your cognition. So there's a lot of different factors that can be uh, put in, I mean, uh, prevented and it can prevent you from losing more cognition or maybe uh, correct it if it's possible. It's not always related to Alzheimer conditions. And even Alzheimer can be slowed down, we believe, if we control, for example, vascular risk factors, if you control your diabetes, your blood pressure, it can slow down the progression of uh, Alzheimer's disease. So we are trying to think of a model where we could um, think from the start of cognitive issues what to do. So this is a future a proposal for the future uh, patient journey where the patient would uh, be uh, concerned or their family is concerned about cognition, then they would be uh, doing, for example, at home, a Mocha Expresso on their phone. And if they're concerned, they can go and see their doctor or nurse practitioner or physician assistant where the, uh, they will uh, evaluate the patient. They can do a solo exam if they're not uh, too, uh, if they are very busy, uh, can be done in the office, or they can eventually, uh, the doctor could prescribe the MOCA test, which could be done uh, in a, at the same time as doing the blood test at the lab or at the pharmacy. So the doctor would not have to take 15 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes to do the MOCA test. So they will prescribe it and it could be done even by video conference. Uh, this is a new idea that we could use the video conference versions of the MOCA test to be done by a certified rater. 
from our MOCA center and they could administer the MOCA by video conference uh, at, the, at the comfort of the patients at home uh, for the patients so they don't have to go to another place to do the test and it will be uh, eventually sent to the doctor the results and then the doctor would have ordered maybe a blood test and he will receive the blood test results the MOCA test results he would call the patient or see the patient again to discuss those results. So if we want to free up the doctors from having to do all the cognitive screening, especially if there are new treatments coming up, you're gonna, the, the demand for uh, testing would increase dramatically. So we need some kind of a solution that will help physicians uh, deal with the increased demand of the shortage of nurses, shortage of doctors, so we can have a system where we could prescribe the uh, cognitive testing plus prescribe other uh, exams. It will become uh, easier for physicians to see more patients. If they can see more patients, they intervene more frequently and they uh, treat more people, so it will uh, help more early detection and early treatment may be involved in the research uh, more quickly instead of delaying it and then there's less intervention in the future. If we, uh, there's lots of studies that have shown early detection can make a difference. So we believe that uh, for sure, I mean, also studies showing if you are taken care of early on, we help you manage your medication, you are less likely to be hospitalized for, uh, for, not, for forgetting to take their medication, for example. Uh, you'll be more uh, longer time at home and less time in the nursing home. So it will improve the quality of life of our patients and also reduce the, significantly the cost for the healthcare system. So in conclusion, uh, the future could be improved. Uh, we are uh, seeing already signs of uh, uh, hope because of the clinical trials are starting to show positivity. So we are on the right track. There still needs a lot to be improved in the cognitive screening, in better biomarkers, in better understanding the pathology of Alzheimer's, uh, and also to uh, have a more sophisticated treatment that can target different biomarkers, not only the amyloid, now there's a tau, there's a different mechanism, but all of it obviously will be important. Uh, all of it is dependent on how much we fund research. So the same for cancer, for cardiovascular disease, tremendous, I mean, uh, milestones were, were reached with the treatments for those other conditions. But for Alzheimer's, there's less, much less funding. And I think the key is to improve uh, research funding that will provide all these uh, uh, good answers and good uh, treatments that could be preventing prevention treatments and also uh, curative treatments for this uh, uh, important pathology that is affecting so many people in our society. So I will stop there. Thank you so much for listening to this uh, presentation. And uh, obviously, I'm still available if you want to contact us to give us ideas of what you would like to uh, uh, to suggest in, or in terms of new ways of assessing cognition. You can also reach us if you want to be part of our clinical trials to bring out uh, new tools um, to assess cognition. We're running multiple trials here uh, for that. And I want to thank also the team at MOCA Cognition, uh, the clinical team. We have the research and clinical trials team and the MOCA test team. So thank you so much uh, for, uh, for your time and for your interest in this, uh, in this topic.
Thank you so much, Dr. Nesradeen. Uh, honestly, what an amazing presentation and so uh, educational and informative. Um, I just, I would love to have a, a few minutes to have some questions with you. So I find this incredibly interesting and probably one of the most informative talks that I've seen to date to really educate you know, the general public about the whole journey through a diagnosis. And I love your message about the importance of, you know, seeking early diagnosis, um, you know, because like you had mentioned, I think a lot of people are really afraid of this disease. Um, you know, a, a lot of people say, oh, well, there's no cure. So why bother becoming diagnosed? Um, so, you know, my team and I at McGill, we just finished writing the 2021 and 2022 world reports. And, you know, some of the challenges that that came up were, first of all, that, what would you say with regards to, you know, the lack of public awareness on a global on a global scale about the early signs and symptoms of dementia? I mean, there's you don't see too many public awareness campaigns about about signs and symptoms. Yeah, I think this this disease, I mean, uh, and also the uh, geriatric disease in general, I think there's a lot of uh, uh, discrimination, I think, uh, for our elderly populations uh, that we are not considering them as much as we should. They're being neglected, frankly neglected, compared to the other conditions that are taken care of in our society. Um, uh, a lot of, I mean, uh, uh, researchers try to uh, apply for grants and it's so limited the amount of uh, funds available. So, so there's not much uh, interest, uh, at least in the society level, to care for those uh, patients who are suffering from those conditions. And often they say it's, uh, it's we're not going to like keep people forever and we're not going to like invest a lot in uh, uh, in in those conditions, so I'm I'm very disappointed that it is not considered a priority, and it's uh, the I think there's a lack of respect for our population that are older that we don't give them the best quality of life they deserve it they've done so much for society and we're now uh, uh, accepting it to that they go to a nursing home and that's it. So and I think with the COVID it made us realize that we are definitely not doing a good job with our elderly uh, and they're being neglected and i think uh, uh, it's maybe shifting the awareness that we should do something and we should keep them at home as long as possible uh, and there are ways to uh, prevent uh, cognitive decline at least 40 percent of of it could be preventable so and i think this message of 40 percent is definitely not uh, known much known i mean when i speak to people it's oh my god i didn't know it was this much uh, and the lancet i mean uh, two years ago like it made it 12 factors that you can act on that you including pollution including uh, hearing uh, diabetes cholesterol obesity physical activity cognitive activity socialization all of those elements are not maybe uh, uh, known to the general public and i think if this message is on a billboard saying 40% of cognitive decline could be prevented, please act now, like uh, mm -hmm. consult now or uh, screen now uh, for your cognition if you're concerned. I think it's a huge thing. I think it is at the same time, there's worry that the system is so over cracking from every side that this will bring on so many people worried and at the same time we should be if we're if we are our cognition is our most precious mm -hmm. uh, i mean treasure that we have as humans i mean this is 
what makes us remember things, what makes us learn things and improve. I mean, and if we neglect that aspect, it's like we're neglecting uh, our, I mean, uh, uh, the most important thing in our lives, which is uh, our memories, our learning abilities. And uh, we should protect it the same way and even more as we protect, uh, as we treat our blood pressure or treat our uh, diabetes uh, cognition should become uh, something standard that we screen for. For example, you, you check your blood pressure, you check your sugar level, but nobody checks really their cognition. And all these elements, why do we protect? Why do we treat the blood pressure? We treat it for preventing heart attacks, preventing strokes, but also it can definitely prevent cognitive impairment. So, and this is not well known. So if we, uh, if we teach, I mean, about this, I think it will help people be more aware they will be taking more seriously their pressure, the blood pressure. They will be more exercise, more uh, nutritional uh, uh, ways of uh, preventing those illnesses, and it will make a huge difference. So, the message that I would like people to remember is to cognition is precious. Let's protect it. Let's prevent it from getting worse. You know? I, I think also, you know, when you look at all of your differential diagnosis, like all the possible causes. You know, as as a medical doctor, you have to be such a detective. Like you, you, there's so many possible factors, and just looking at you know the steps to get a proper diagnosis. It's not just about the MOCA, but there's so many other steps that have to be taken. And what we saw from the world reports is that there's a, been a true lack of education of healthcare professionals at the university level in terms of how to go about all these steps. You know, when you talk about the correlation between cardiovascular health and dementia or, you know, knowing how to do these diagnoses. And right now, unfortunately, for so many people, they don't know the early signs and symptoms, and then they don't know what type of doctor to go see because they think, do I see a family doctor? Do I see a psychologist? Do I have to see a geriatrician? It's this pathway to getting that proper diagnosis is is completely uh, broken, you know, and not clear. So I, you know, I think that, that we have to look at, you know, I mean, we, one of the the call to actions from the 2022 World Report was really all about, you know, enhancing the education at the university level, and 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 providing, you know, the doctors are learning about the disease and a pharmacological approach. But there's got to be a lot more about, you know, what are the most, what are the signs and symptoms, what are non pharmacological approaches. Absolutely. Yes. The physicians, I mean, they are, they say, oh, uh, it's normal. You know, you're forgetting it's normal as aging. And they have, they have 15 minutes to see the patients or 10, 15 minutes. So they, they're not going to be able to tackle necessarily that issue. So they often brush it off. Uh, as we'll see this next time, if it's still a problem next year or six months from now. So there's a lot, a lot of, uh, uh maybe, uh, under, I mean, estimation of how like, significant it is to detect early. And because it also takes time and they're gonna, they have other patients, you know, that complaining of uh, uh, cancer symptoms and now they have to, uh, and they're gonna say, ah, I have something to do with cancer, but not with Alzheimer's because they think, okay, I'm not gonna be able to intervene. Why should I detect anything? Why should I do any investigation? So the doctors definitely need to know that the cognition has a lot of impact on the quality of life of the patients. And if we can provide them ways to help them screen, like we're suggesting in our presentation, maybe it could be a solution to consider so that they are not 
uh, having to choose between asking questions about cancer and also tackling Alzheimer's symptoms with other patients. So this was uh, something that could be maybe uh, proposed that they could prescribe the test as they prescribe a blood test. They would prescribe a content screening test that could be also uh, administered. Yeah. So I have one last question. Um, you know, I mean, everybody's looking for hope. And, and when you talk about in, in terms of research, all the drugs that are being tested right now and that are may or may not be approved, but for the ones that do finally get approved, how long does it take to get from approval into the market? How easy it is, how easy is it for people to get a hold of this medication? Because I get that question a lot from families that I work with. Like I heard there's a medication, how do I get it? So what is what is the real path to, to getting the medication? Yeah, usually obviously the uh, the clinical trials uh, have to be positive and uh, publish in the peer-reviewed journals that uh, have determined that the publication is sound and the study was well done and then it's brought to the uh, authorities who uh, approve uh, medications the in Canada Health Canada will be involved and also in the US the FDA so so they usually uh, look at the results and determine if the if it's solid the results if the impact is significant then they will say okay the side effects profile looks good the uh, cognitive benefits look good the slowing of decline looks good and then they would uh, approve it for example uh, if they approve for example in january uh, a, a medication usually it would take uh, then the provinces have to also approve the reimbursement so then even if it's approved then you have to approve insurance companies have to accept also to reimburse it or medicare if it's in in canada and each province decides on their own what they would approve or not so some medications in the past used to be approved only in quebec for example and not in british columbia like the Ariset was taking time to be approved in the past depending on the province and they have different approval criteria so some of them, uh, they need a specific score, you know, on cognitive screening. Uh, some of them, they have to exclude other causes. Uh, they say they have a vascular damage and Alzheimer. They might not be included in the treatment because they don't fit the profile. Mm -hmm. So uh, they usually they take the clinical trial uh, inclusion criteria. And then they say, this is the type of patients that improved with the medication. Then we're going to approve the treatment uh, cost based on those criteria. Um, and then it did take actually um, a few months, I think within a year of the approval, it could be available uh, to be prescribed by physicians. But it's a long process. It's not, you know, it, it, it takes time. And it takes time, usually uh, at least one year, actually, from the request of the, let's say, the industry who the, uh, puts a request for approval. Usually, Health Canada would take one year to respond and to give their answer. So mm -hmm. if they present, for example, in January of next year, any uh, request for approval for the new medication that has uh, been shown some positive results, it could take up to one year later uh, to be uh, to, to, for the answer to be given uh, for the approval for Canada and a few months more for the provinces to decide to reimburse or not. Dr. Nezreddin, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us uh, today on McGill Cares and uh, I'm really, really grateful. It was such an amazingly informative uh, webcast that you've done with me.
Thank you for the great work you're doing, uh, Claire, and it's a pleasure to be here. So this webcast is an initiative of the McGill Dementia Education Program, which is funded by private donations. If you would like to make a contribution to our program or for more information about all of our resources, please visit us at mcgill.ca slash dementia. And if you would like to join our mailing list to be notified about upcoming episodes of McGill Cares, as well as important programs and resources, please email us at dementia at mcgill.ca. Thank you for watching.